Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I'm your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I have interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation around the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's s-w-changehappen.co.uk. You'll be able to catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 47, with the title, Escaping the Echo Chamber of DNI Lingo. And I have the absolute honour and privilege to be joined by Greg McCaw. Greg describes himself as someone who is challenging the status quo and helping leaders and colleagues redesign workplaces so it works for everyone. When I asked Greg to describe his superpower, he said it is his humour. And he would like to think he has an ability to make people smile, laugh and relax. Hello, Greg. Welcome to the show. An absolute pleasure to be here, Joe. I guess this podcast will tell whether I have the ability to make people laugh. Although that's not what I'm here for today, but we'll see. (laughs) Fantastic. So we were talking just before we came live around some of our own experiences. So tell me about you know the echo chamber of DNI lingo and uh, and how that impacts you. Um, so I, th- I think something that I've really noticed in this profession is is that we reuse the same lingo and terminology that um, it's in diversity and inclusion that we use in business bingo and it's making its way into that hall of fame and i think things like bringing your authentic self to work is one that we say these well-meaning statements all the time joe but very rarely do we really unpack what it really takes to create an environment in which somebody can be themselves and when we're saying things like allyship or bring your authentic self to work or anything from the space of DE&I, we need to remember in the majority of the conversations we're having, we're not chatting to DE&I experts. So it's so important that we unpack what those statements actually mean and what it means for the person that you're speaking to and how that person that you're speaking to can actually go about helping others be their authentic selves or how they might be an ally or what the term intersectionality actually means. We want it and we know it's important, but what does it actually mean? Um, So I think we are running the risk in the space of DE&I and getting caught up too much in the lingo and not spending enough time unpacking what those words really mean for people. Mm, I I agree. I've heard people now, I think the new buzzword is psychological safety, which is an evolution Mm. of bringing your whole self to work. And if you look at the the, the Merriam-Webster Oxford, and Oxford English dictionary definitions of, the, of those phrases, then it's it's a, it's a great place to be. You know, you can you don't have to look over your shoulder. You, you don't have to watch your language. And you know that people around you aren't going to cause microaggressions, et cetera, et cetera. So it's an evolution, probably more meaningful because what is bringing your whole self to work? I mean, we don't want to overshare, do we? No, um, uh, no, not at all. And I think psychological safety is another, it's a perfect example of another word that's, or statement, sorry, that's been continually overused. And I had a really interesting conversation with somebody at work that said, we need to start measuring psychological safety at work. And uh, my response was, we already do in many of the different questions that we ask in our engagement surveys. But let's maybe just bring together those different questions around whether somebody feels heard, whether they have high levels of trust within the um, team that they're in, and whether they feel that they can challenge the views and perspectives of leaders in an organization. All of those things that contribute to psychological safety are there. You'd never, and I guess this is, you know, going back to the point of falling into the trap of DE&I lingo, you'd never ask the question in an engagement survey, do you feel psychologically safe? Because for the majority of people, they'd read that and say that I I don't actually really know what that means. But what you do instead is you unpack it in a multitude of different questions to really measure or not whether safety exists within your organisation. It it also means different things to different people. I mean, we're both part of the LGBTQ plus 
XYZ community. I mean, it's broader spectrum and it means something different to me than it does to you or maybe someone who is a young black woman or someone who has autism or whatever. It means different things to different people. So what are we really trying to say when we, when we say it? I mean, what, what's the, the, the motivation behind the statement, if you like? Yeah, and, and that's a good point, and that relies on us all assuming, uh, well, and what we currently do too much of is assuming that we all share the same experience at work, and and that's where we have to accept that there is not one big homogenous shared experience of the workplace, and that different diversity groups come to work and have different needs and have different experiences of work, and indeed face different barriers to opportunity or different obstacles to overcome. And I think we can set out tall ambitions and broad ambitions around bring your whole authentic self to work and creating psychological safety. But until we really begin to think about how different facets of diversity experience our world of work and begin to glean and gather feedback from them and how they experience uh, our practices, our policies, how our everyday decisions impact those different diversity groups, then it's really hard to create or meet that ambition of psychological safety it's really hard to create that overall ambition of bringing your most authentic self to work if we don't unpack it and delve into the detail of what actions need to happen at a more granular level for that ambition to actually be realized because it can't be realized in grand gestures can it you can do a massive fanfare in a company um, all hands and say that we want everybody to bring their uh, most authentic selves to work and everybody will leave your big grand town hall and go back to their desk but their everyday experiences don't stack up to that ambition and that's where we've just got to be careful when we're making these statements we've got to ask ourselves the questions Will our actions help us realise these ambitions? Because they're important things, but our actions need to connect back to those statements and the tactics we deploy need to connect back to those statements. Mm. Uh, And also, is, is this phraseology almost excluding a large chunk of the workforce? Because, I mean, I spent a good chunk of my life in the in the straight white male perceived category and I didn't have any perceived problem in bringing all of me to work I was just me every day so when we focus on on this bring your whole self to work uh, psychological safety does it really resonate with everybody uh, some people go I'm just me every day well c- completely Joe and that's, that's such a good point because what we don't want to do in the work of diversity, equity and inclusion is alienate a group of people from the conversation uh, and especially alienate those that hold real privilege and power in our organisations and can be real drivers of change. So it's important for me that whilst there's some very negative statements out there like um, steel and meal, I generally find though that type of rhetoric incredibly unhelpful for driving this work forward in a positive direction and on the example that you've just given the thing that I always say to people is is that you know how the world of work works for you and you know what barriers or obstacles you've had to overcome what we're asking you to do in this work is to consider that not everybody has the same experience at work and to learn how those experiences might vary and how you as a straight white male might be able to leverage your um, privilege and your power to um, uh, drive change. And those are the conversations that I have with some of our leaders in um, our business. They are an important part of the conversation. I remind them of that, that I need them to be part of it. Um, And that what we can't do uh, is shut them off from the conversation because whilst a... um, I can't remember the rest of the saying, Joe, steel, meal, and whatever it is, but um, uh, whilst that might come from a really emotionally charged place and a place of like, I want to see change and I want to see a better organization, what you do by shutting those groups of people off from the conversation is move the burden of responsibility back to underrepresented groups to drive the change. And um, that 
inadvertently that passion you have to go well that straight white male has nothing to do with the conversation and um, you're pushing the, the burden of responsibility back onto the people that really need to see the change instead of really engaging with those powerful people in your organization and helping unlock something in them that helps them realize um uh, how they drive change and um like one thing i was really inspired by by one of our chief executives um, when they got promoted into a CEO role was is that they rang me and said that, um, listen, Greg, I know that this work might not apply to me, um, but I tell you what I am going to do. And I tell you what I do have as a chief executive. I have power in this role and I'm going to use that power as a force for good. And I've never felt so inspired by a leader in a business acknowledging the power and the privilege that they hold. And I would hope that the reason they've got there is because the level of engagement and energy that we put into making sure we don't shut people off from these conversations. Yeah, I agree a bit. I, I often say that you know we we have to we have to get the people with power and privilege to open the door, and if we if we go armed with stones and rocks and and aggression and, and which I know when we're in a minority country, so you feel this kind of pent up frustration a lot. But if you don't engage with people with power and privilege, the first thing that happens is they often slam the door shut, pull the drawbridge up, stand on the ramparts, throwing rocks on you, boiling oil. They just want to repel the borders because it's not that they're intent on protecting their castle as such, but, they, they feel under attack and it's, it's kind of a way of how do we engage with people who can make change and deliver change from their position of power without making them feel threatened. That's the real challenge that I see. Mm. And it, and it is a challenge when so much of our work is geared around placing the burden and responsibility onto ERGs or networks or minority groups and underrepresented folk. And we need to face up to the reality, Joe, that we cannot fix this problem by tasking a smaller group, a small group of volunteers to drive change. That will never work. We'll never see the change that we need to see. And whilst I don't want to discredit the work of ERGs in businesses, they play an incredibly important role and they can be catalysts for change, but they need to be empowered and given power um, uh, in the right way to drive that change. But if we assume that that's the only vehicle for change or most effective path to change, we'll fail and we'll not see the change that we need to see. Um, And so it's important to spend time with leaders and to not take some of the emotional sentiment that I feel of when I'm at a, um, and I've participated in many protests or marches outside of work, that I don't take that into the meetings that I have with leaders. Like I don't come with the charge that I have or that emotion that I have in that moment and bring it into a conversation with me with the CEO because immediately they're just going to go, whoa, this is too much to digest. And you need to invest time in helping them think about what are the everyday actions, decisions and behaviours of a senior leader, a director, a vice president or a CEO where you should probably be thinking about diversity, equity or inclusion and how can you consider it more when you make those decisions, when you take those actions or in the behaviours that you display and that investment and that time investment of where you're helping them really understand what privilege is, how they leverage theirs to create a better workplace for others is where we'll um, see change. And that work takes time because we have to accept that change happens in the everyday actions of the individual, not in once and done training programs. Um, uh, when you do train with leaders, the other thing that I think is also really important to think about is, is that you might do this amazing course and your directors might come off the back of it and go, I've got it. I know what I need to do now to drive change. But the other thing we need to think about in our line of work is, well, what behavioral nudges or reinforcing mechanisms are we going to place in different parts of the employee life cycle or the courses of that director's career to remind them about the learnings that they took from that training to embed it further. And so like I commented on a post the other week um, uh, where I talked about how the industry of DEI is littered in once and done activity. And um, we're not thinking enough about how when we do work, how do we embed it 
and how do we measure the effectiveness of the programs of work we're delivering in our organization and take more of an iterative approach, Joe. Like when you do something, it's okay to go that that training course that we ran didn't drive change and it didn't work. So let's not do that again. And I think that's where we've got to accept that this that there's no end point in this work. We have to be iterative in our approach and test and learn different tests and uh, learn different things from our, our leaders. There's no one size fits all solution to get your leaders just to wake up tomorrow and um, take a completely new course. Completely agree. And I talk about polarity. So we can't get to the end, but what we can do is we can tend towards a positive environment. So we're, what we're looking for is going from the, the negative or the neutral to the positive. And that, that's our direction of travel. And one day we're probably nudging into the diversity strand in a bit more. Next, we come back to the, the inclusion, but we've got to try and do this hand in hand and lockstep. Otherwise, we end up with this mismatch where we're, we're not really including anybody and we're just pitchforking people in through tokenism or making performative actions just to satisfy how it looks in the organization. So I completely agree. And, but yeah, there's no magic bullet. It's about polarity. It's about making positive directions. And we've got to be careful that, as you say, when we're doing these training courses, what, what's our objective when we go into the training? Is it, I hope it's around the journey. It's around this is the beginning or this is the next stage, the reinforcement. And when we come out, I mean, you've been on some of my courses. One thing I always say at the end is what's next? You know, what what are you going to do next? How are you going to take this back to your role, back to the business and implement what we've talked about? Because if it just stays in the room, then it's it's been a fun two hours, but it hasn't actually changed anything, has it? No, not at all. And I worry that our industry is getting caught up in PR over progress. Um, and there's a lot of theatre in DE&I and there's a lot of great headline grabbing work that you can do. But the reality is this is complex cultural change and it needs to be worked at and chipped away at and you need to have an iterative approach. And I'm very passionate about uh, testing and learning as you go and recognising your your successes, but also really recognizing your failures in your programs of work and what hasn't worked well and what hasn't driven change. Um, And the point that you made um, about what's the outcome, I'm very passionate and talk to our DE&I leads about business outcomes so that if you're starting a program of work, I'll always ask the question, what's the business outcome that you hope to see? It's a great idea because often or not, the things that we do in DEI will never be criticized as a bad idea. Um, But what outcome do you hope to see? What change do you hope to bring about as a result of that program or mentoring scheme that you've chosen to do? How will it make a difference to somebody in an organization? Are you hoping to see that more people move through the talent pipeline into senior roles? Are you hoping to create more safe spaces or for people to regard that there are safer spaces for them to talk in an organization? So we've got to be very focused on the... um, outcomes that we want to see and aligning those outcomes to our organization's biggest opportunities um, and priorities because the DE&I industry has turned into a multi-billion pounds industry. So you need to pick and choose your programs of work and your tactics carefully and make sure they ladder back up clearly to the outcomes you want to see or the strategy that you've let out for the business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we've worked together on a couple of projects and some training and some programs in the past. Mm -hmm. And I I know some of the the passionate work you're doing to make sure that what you're doing within your organization is joined up across the entire organization. It's not just a DNI initiative, not just a a hiring talent acquisition initiative, marketing. But so often I see this disconnect between corporate appetite for change, the DNI strategy, the playbook, whatever you want to call it. And then the implementation by the people on the ground. So hiring managers, hiring in their own image or or, or not learning. They're still looking at 2-1 degrees. They're still looking at Red Brick Universities. They're still looking at CVs and names. Yeah. Yet you know these organizations. You know, I know the directors. I know the people in the DNI positions. I know the people in the head of TA. The hiring managers aren't reflecting the corporate policies. So how do we really drive change to the point where it matters? Because it's getting, it's getting lost somewhere in, in, in the ether, isn't it, the message? Yeah, completely. I am... Um... I think when you lay out an ambition, and my role globally is um, I cover quite a few countries in my role, 
And our role globally was to lay out a shared ambition and some key pillars for us to get behind to drive change. But how they look in each of our countries will look completely different so that they can realise their local opportunities and challenges. Um, but to operationalise the ambition, one thing that was really important for me was to not just launch this ambition in our brand, which is everyone included. That's the collateral in the brand of our DE&I strategy. And that sounds great. That's lovely. But how do you then operationalize that ambition and grow the understanding of what change needs to take place? And one thing that we're testing at the minute and um, have made a commitment to run for the next two years is our DEI learning series and labs, which will specifically target our HR and DEI teams. So, What we're saying is we're not launching this strategy and just dropping in a one-off training session for you folks. The training here to help us realize this long-term ambition that we've let out and these three phases that are broken up over the next five years, as we embark and hit each of these phases and approach the goals that we need to meet, we'll create spaces in which we can learn together, experiment together and talk about how we can face into some of those challenges. Um, So that learning series will um, commence in October. It will run for all of next year. And I have full intent to continue to run it and to help support our teams and you talk about the people on the ground I think the forgotten people Joe every time in DEI or HR like it's fallen into human resources because it feels like it's normal home and that's okay Um, where DEI belongs and sits is another conversation but what we need to remember is, is, is that HR can't be the master of everything and it can't be skilled in absolutely everything so I can't um, put my time and energy into the three and a half thousand leaders we have across our business. Um, uh, uh, some of that work will happen at a local level and with some of the country leads, but I can put a serious time investment into closing the knowledge gap with our HR and DEI teams. And we will invite, to your point on that example around talent acquisition, we'll invite different people with different skills into the learning series as well. So in the new year, we're running one specifically around data and insights on how to become a powerful storyteller. And when you've got, you pull all of this amazing data off your HRIS, but how do you turn it into something compelling, a really strong narrative to drive change? And we'll be inviting people from our analytics teams to come and participate in those um, uh, learning labs. They're the experts. I'm not the expert in data and analytics. Those folks are. So it's it's right that we empower them um, to help drive some of the change in the organization. So that's one thing. I don't need one example of what we are doing to try and make sure that the big ambition up here is well understood across our organization. I think you're so right that uh, we often see DNI as a spin-off of HR or the people team. And I, I coined a, an acronym the other day, PPE. It seems quite topical at the moment. <laughs> it's, it's about positive people experiences. And when I talk about people experience, it's not just employee. It's not just candidate. It's customer. It's stakeholder. It's anybody, any person, any people that touch your business and you want to have a positive people experience, an inclusive experience, a belongingness. That's why we create brand, to create belonging and, and all this allegiance to our marketing and everything. And I think we too often just think of it. I, I've seen organizations focusing on a colleague to colleague experience and they're forgetting the customer experience or the service user experience. And then they look at each other and go, well, if that was a, if that was a colleague to colleague, we'd be invoking the equality app. But when it's, a, when it's a customer, we forget about that. Or, or you're so focused on the customer, you forget about the colleague experience and then you, you allow customers to almost have a negative experience on your colleagues. So yeah, there's, this, often is this mismatch, isn't there? And the brand and the whole culture, and right from the, the top level, uh, uh, the board level. And I think you're so right that we need to have it in every director's report in the same way risk, target, strategy. We talk about this every day in the boardroom. Every director has their own report. DNI needs to be woven through that as well, not as a separate people function. The DNI team could be the could be the checks and balances. They could be the knock on the door. Have you thought about you know, the coaching, the mentors, but not the responsibility? 
completely otherwise DE&I teams risk taking everything under their wing to fix when actually our job is to redesign and rebuild current practices processes and policies so your job isn't to take over from the rewards team and redesign and and, and for you to redesign their way of work it's for you to drive more positive outcomes through reward through marketing through supply chain and um and ideally, the outcome that you would want to see that DE&I is a natural enabler and a metric featured in strategies. Uh, but I do think we have a long way to go in skilling and enabling people to present DEI information in a compelling way. Like we've got so much data in our organizations. We are um, uh, data rich and um, we just don't know how to piece bits of data together to get a complete picture of somebody's experience at work. But we always look at it in isolation. We'll present an exit interview report and then we'll present our six monthly engagement survey. And then we'll look at our pay decisions. And these are all looked at in separate pieces of information and data. But what we really need to be doing is pulling that data together and joining up one complete experience of a colleague so that we can ask tougher and more uncomfortable questions around whether underrepresented people in our business have a different experience, whether they have a different view on opportunities, whether they're impacted differently on pay, whether they say or provide us different feedback in our exit interviews. And that's where data is one thing, but I think the other more, more, probably more powerful catalyst of that is insight, driving the story around what that data tells us, because we can fill decks up with data all day long. But if we're not shaping it in a meaningful way to drive change and throw some really uncomfortable questions towards our leaders around what the data is telling us, then we're not using the data to, uh, as, a, as a driving force for good. Yes, that real lived experience and covering what's really happening. Not, it's a, often, as you say, data can tell you anything you, you want it to tell you, but it's really uncovering the, the, uh, the blips, the glitches, not normalizing those out and go, oh, that's just a glitch. I was chatting to uh, a young black graduate. Uh, she uh, joined her organization with a cohort of, of a, a dozen or so other graduates of, of various backgrounds and, and genders and ethnicities. And she felt really empowered that she'd been put in this graduate scheme. She felt that the, the, the organization sales were really DNI focused. Oh, and then she found out that one of her white white colleague female graduates had been offered a promotion that wasn't advertised it was kind of one of those water cooler conversation type oh, you should, do you want this role and, and that completely destroyed her faith in their internal processes there was no openness there was no there's no she didn't even know the role existed let alone it could be applied for and all of her black colleagues felt the same uh, so this still goes on in organizations where we even we believe there is equity within the internal recruitment process this is one story shows that this is one example of probably many that aren't uncovered um and that's that's what we've got to try and fix as well isn't it a hundred percent. This is, I get very passionate and I pull my DEI soapbox out about stuff like this. Um, uh, it's great to have uh, an external marketing campaign or brand around your diverse and your commitment to diversity, equity and inclusion. But if that is not backed up by the internal reality of what your people experience day to day, it is meaningless. It is inauthentic. It is performative. And that's where we've really got to challenge ourselves to go to where the hard work is at. And whilst things, Joe, like webinars and training and setting up ERGs are all incredibly important. If we don't start beginning to tie our work back to business outcomes and driving greater um, parity and equity for our people, we will not see change. And that's a perfect example of it where there is an ambition to do well in diversity, equity and inclusion, but the internal reality of that employee was completely different. So the biggest thing I would encourage, and I talk about this a lot, is Stop measuring employee engagement uh, by the majority. Don't present it back as the experience of one group of people. Show me what that data looks like for different diversity groups. So like in our organization, we've set a really clear goal that by the end of 2022, all of our brands need to be measuring um, engagement across all facets of diversity. 
And that's a challenging thing to get to that I would love Joe to be able to switch on tomorrow. But that's there's some hard work and frameworks and foundations that need to be built first. But some of our brands have already begun to do it. And we're already beginning to see a uh, variables in experience and differences in experiences across different groups. So, uh, um, you know, external uh, reality um, uh, or your external ambition needs to be backed up by some real experiences internally. And, and you need to be able to substantiate that it is. And I think to get there, to really get to that point, where your big bold statement on your website means something, you've got to really pick apart the processes, practices and policies that people experience day in and day out in work and really ask yourself how much of the working landscape have we redesigned or redeveloped or disrupted to make sure it's fit or suited to everybody at work before we make that statement externally. And I think it's fine to have these ambitious statements on our websites but I think we need to be anchored in a bit of reality as well and tempered with it we're not there yet we have so much more work to do and this is the plan we've led out to get there yeah I completely agree whenever I'm talking to companies about their engagement data the first question I always say is who says if you can't tell me who said that uh, not by person, person, but by by demographic, intersectional demographic. If you can't tell me who they are, who who are the who are the eighty five percent that are happy, and who are the fifteen percent that aren't happy, and out of that fifteen percent that aren't happy, who are the five percent that really aren't really really aren't happy? Can we te- can we tell what department they're in, what their ethnicity, what their sexuality is? Can we can we drill down and say actually we can build a model here that says black women in their thirties are often more disenfranchised than black women in their forties, mm-hmm. and we can start looking at why that exists because there are different different trajectory in their career there's no training programs there's no, there's no opportunity for them whereas when they're in the 40s they're often more settled in their 20s they've got graduate programs and then you get into this vacuum when nothing happens for them so yeah you need to be able to look at why that group are stalling in their career or in their, or in their motivation and that's that's often what people don't see Absolutely, absolutely. And what you've just described there is brilliant because what we're talking about there is is then that the tactics we deploy and the initiatives we take are designed around the experiences of our people. We've actually really got to the work of designing um, tactics around real business problems and real experiences. As where I worry sometimes in uh, the world of DEI, we don't do enough to understand our internal reality properly. We're quite comfortable taking a bit of baseline data from a survey that hasn't broken down by different facets of diversity. And we're also really comfortable of maybe ripping off somebody else's DEI strategy and just lifting and shifting it into our organization without any question around whether it'll work in ours. And it might pay a bit of dividend, but the likelihood is it won't drive the change that you need to see. And um, like I love when I hear some of our really data-driven leaders like our CEO for the UK will go, well, where are the real problems and opportunities? We need to know that. Um, uh, like we've just um, made an immediate change to our the way that we do engagement. And when you worked with me, um, uh, Joe, at Sky Betting Game, and we did do this, but we've um, just launched a, a diversity, equity and inclusion measurement tool Um that's come into effect and will be across a hundred percent of our brands by the end of next year. And, and then our second add on to that is then to begin to disaggregate that data and um, uh, look at what it, um, looks like for different groups of people because whilst it's really important for us to have a horizon strategy and be really clear in the trajectory that we're heading in and what, what, what type of company we expect to be in three to four years from now so that we align our tactics and our programs of work up to driving that change, what real-time engagement data also gives you is the ability to listen, learn and act in the moment and make immediate changes to people's experiences at work. So like not everything hinges on the strategy. And the other thing that's really important for us, and I think should be important for every other organization is stop doing six monthly engagement service. Stop it because that is not, that cannot be the only space for people to be heard. We need to create more spaces for different groups of people um, of all identities and all backgrounds with different perspectives and experiences to feedback more regularly than every six months. So we're up in the frequency of our surveys um, across all brands, um, uh, some of whom have moved to just three to four simple questions a week. 
Because what that enables us to do is it improves our reliability of data. But I think the other really important conversation topic is all of this can sit on DEI and HR effects. We need to empower managers to drive change. And what real-time engagement data gives them is a real picture of how their colleagues feel and allows them to take action in the moment to drive positive change and then make them feel that they are really part of the journey of driving a more um, inclusive culture. Because that also allows... With that, with that frequency, to pick up on societal pressures as well, whether it's uh, a Black Lives Matter trigger, whether it's a Sarah Everard uh, uh, violence against women and girls trigger, whether that's a, a gas a price hike trigger, sort of a budget trigger, we can start looking at what's going on in society and then mirroring our, our employee experience and saying, well, actually, what we've got here is we've got people from low socioeconomic backgrounds or status being impacted more significantly as a result of, of what's going on in the world. Uh, and we can start to use our corporate power, if you like, to A, advocate into the wider world, but also recognise the lived experience and challenges our people have for showing up. And I think that's really, really, really good. And you can you can map that against what's going on in the world. I think that's really, really powerful. It's so powerful um, and complex, and it reminds us of how complex this work is, that it can't be solved in simple one-off surveys. Um, The complexity of it is high, but when you accept that this work requires in-depth thinking and data analysis, you can, in that example you've just gave, drive brilliant and meaningful change. Instead of just assuming that we all show up to work and have the same experiences, we're able to really dig in to the experiences people have, identify the gaps in those experiences, and then act quickly to close those gaps. That's like that's that's what really gets me out of bed in the morning. That's what excites me about mm. this work, is shutting down and closing experience gaps for groups of people. That's what makes this work incredibly exciting. But to do that, you need, especially from a global perspective, maybe less so in a smaller organization where you could maybe take a different path to change. But for me, I cover uh, 75 different nationalities and I am uh, we're a global business, so I need a scalable solution to be able to, to listen um, and to glean insight. Um, we, of course, don't rely on it, as a, on it as our single source of truth. But um, you need to think of when you're a big organization, you need to think of scalable listen, listening solutions um, as well. And that, that's the most exciting thing about having an engagement tool that enables you to do that. Not a survey, but a real proper tool that enables you to dive into mm. people's day-to-day experiences. And as you said look at where the dial shifts when something happens societally as well. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a major challenge when you've got that many territories, that many cultures, that many different languages and the nuances that occur between cultures and, 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 and uh, different uh, countries where the language, the translations, the time zones, all those things have major factors. And it's we've got different privacy laws, GDPR in Europe. We've got different mm-hmm. privacy laws in, in what we can and can't collect. We've got um, societal change, differences in terms of LGBT inclusion, how men and women are viewed in society, how race differs between cultures as well. Uh, we think about, you know, race in one way but in in berlin they think about race in a different way in terms of the turkish immigrant population we look at race in japan or china they think it differently so we often look at it from our own maybe western uk lens sometimes forgetting about the the nuances that dni has around the world so how, how do you go around trying to create some homogenized view of the world or do we really need to separate it and say well this is our view from this territory this is our view from this territory or how do we how do we extract that? So I work with a fantastic team of DE&I leads um, who are dotted around our various brands who have real depth of understanding in the cultural nuances that affect this work. And um, what we need to do at a global level, well, what we have done at a global level is set out some key principles for us on diversity, equity and inclusion. So we've set out some principles and how we believe this work should be delivered most effectively. We've laid out some um, benchmarks and standards that we've built using the tool from the Global Inclusion Council. 
um, which provides us a globally fit framework to help us drive towards um, and strive towards best practice. And there are some goals that we've agreed globally that we want to achieve, um, like really understanding our internal reality better. You know, that goal can apply under any culture or any um, country that before we begin this work, it is important that the right foundations are in place. Having strong foundations matter for any strategy in any country. And I am... really putting a lens over your practices, policies and processes matter in any country or any culture. But what we've said from a global perspective is, is that how that work is delivered and what our countries um, uh, define to be their greatest opportunities and challenges is their decision to make uh, that they have to decide based on their market and their local challenges so that I don't expect America, India, and Australia to be redesigning or the same policy or um, implementing the same training initiative. They need to look at our overall global ambition and create a local strategy that ladders back up to the principles that we've set, um, but recognizes that their markets, um, and not just their country, but even their office locations, depending on where they are, are entirely different. So, That's our shared ambition and our shared goals. So we don't have a one size fits all in our organization for diversity, equity and inclusion. And, you know, an example last week was I was working with one of our team in Portugal around beginning to build out Portugal's DEI ambition and strategy. Um, but we we ladder that back up quite carefully to our overall global ambition, um, which is, you know, we've set three principles out, which have a lot of work underneath it. But um, it might sound rudimentary in nature when I say it, but our three principles are to create, embed and measure that we want to ditch once and done activity and focus more on driving long term cultural change. And that when we create an activity or believe that a tactic is right for our organization, that we also put as much thought and energy into how we'll embed it so that that thing that you've created or that tactic that you think is right, you're also thinking about how you can embed it deeper into the employee life cycle to bring about lasting change. And so as long as those three principles have been followed and our approach to work in each of our countries and each of our territories, um, that's fine. But we have to accept that the, the landscape of DEI looks entirely different across different countries and you can't take any a, a European-centric approach um, when you go into either of those countries or if your company is owned by a US-based company, you can't take the US-centric approach to driving DEI, which just adds to the complexity, Joe, and the daily fun of working in diversity, equity and inclusion. Even within Western Europe, there's a whole different nuances between between countries and and their cultures and uh, and what matters to them. So yeah, no, you're right. I can imagine that when we're talking about Far East, APAC region, there's a lot of different uh, cultures there. Which, as a as a British English person, I'm nowhere near familiar enough to either have a comment on some of those cultures. And that's that, that that's if you like, I say the beauty of D and I and and acquiring that cultural diversity to understand those cultures. Yeah, I find that fascinating to understand the different challenges and the different environments that, that operate in the world. Do you think? So we're what nineteen twenty months on from from the lockdown in in the UK and similar times from lockdowns in other, in, other, in other countries around the world. We, we focused a lot in that time around employee experience, you know, the same storm, different boats, really being person-centric, pushing people home, caring. Do you think that the employee experience has started to wane a bit? Do you think, do you think employers are, are taking their foot off the pedal here? And, and here we go back, back to the old ways or, I'm asking you to comment in a general sort of way, maybe not within your own organisation, but what, what do you hear about the experience of others? Generally, what I see out in a, the in an organisational context is, is that, that organisations are, some are leaning to dictating um, flexibility, which, you know, in itself is quite ironic because that's not flexible. Um, And 
Others are leaving it entirely at the choice of the employee. So we've seen big organizations go out and go work your way, work anyway. And there's been no amount of webinars or round tables that I've been invited to on the future of work or hybrid working. So I think some organizations are still trying to find their feet on it. I don't think it's, I don't think the conversation is dying or dropping off, but I think what we need to do and accept is we won't have all the answers moving into this new world of work. And that's why it's so important for us to um, continue to map people's experiences, ask difficult questions, test and learn from our new hybrid policies or ways of working and asking, are they working for everybody? And really take an iterative approach to this. You know, I've seen no end of playbooks and manuals and guidance, and those are useful and needed to a degree because whilst you might say something like, everybody can do what they want and the company gives you the freedom to choose, if 90% of the company head back into the office and then the other 10% are sat at home feeling under pressure to move back into the office as well. It's tough. So sometimes playbooks and principles are helpful to at least empower people to go, well, that decision I've just made for myself is okay. My company will support that. Mm. Um, uh, but we need to take an iterative approach um, and make sure that we're regularly testing how people feel about hybrid working. And, you know, at a very rudimentary and basic level, um, if you have your first collaborative hybrid meeting, stop the meeting 15, 20 minutes early and um, whiteboard or ask for feedback on how was that experience for everybody in the room? Um, how was that experience for those of you that joined us on Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whatever your chosen technology platform is? Um, uh, and how was it for those of you that were in the room? And what are the gaps between the feedback of those that join remotely and those that were in the room and where were the experience gaps and take those learnings from every meeting you have and every interaction you have or every experience that you create and use it to keep closing the experience gaps as we walk through this journey together of, of learning how to get the best out of this. Um, so I think that's probably the best approach. Um, and there's loads of companies out there that I think are just trying to have all the answers for the first day of hybrid working. You know, we're not going to have that. We don't know. Like we can do as much to prepare our workforce for this, but we've got to um, test and learn. I sound like a broken record, but I, I just do but believe I, I, in a very agile approach to, to doing work. I think I think we have to be. I think that's one thing we have learned is there is no one size fits all. It's as you say, it's about test, adapt, learn, tweak, try something else. Because um, I've, I've I've spoken to people who've who have been passionate about going back into the office because that's their, their, either their home environment isn't suitable for them, it's noisy, whatever it may be, or they're just they're just they're just a people person that has to have that interaction. And they've gone back and they found the whole back in the office suboptimal. It wasn't what they were expecting because the people they're expecting to see there weren't working on the same day or the, the buzz wasn't there because many people are still working remote. The commute, the mask wearing, the, the tube, the whole drudgery of going back into the office didn't live up to their, their the hype, if you like. So, yeah, I, I think even the, the most ad, strong advocates about going back to the office are still saying, well, hang on a minute, it isn't what it used to be. So we've got to try even adapt that and think about how we're going to do it. And you're right, it's 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 an iterative process. I think we need to look at everybody's experience, avoid creating this two-tier work structure where the people in the office seem to have the power the people who work remotely are still seem to be the slackers or the yeah you know, the disparate yeah you know, they're not really working they're at home sort of thing uh, so we've got to change that culture that language how we perceive people their effectiveness but what a great challenge joe for us to embrace yeah. what a great challenge for people teams to embrace that yes your culture was um fatiguing slightly from hearing so many companies say but we built our culture on um, uh, us being in the office and connecting face to face well you've got a great culture you're known for your fantastic culture what a great opportunity or challenge for you to create a culture that reaches everyone everywhere what a challenge to face into to go that if somebody joins us remotely in tech in um, Dorset 
can we create the same experience for them mm. or a great, not the same experience is not the right word, but can we create a great experience for them if they've joined um, remotely? Because the one thing people don't have that joined all of our businesses remotely is social capital. They've missed out on the nights out the office gatherings, the team meetings, the water cooler chats, and they've joined remotely. So they've not had the opportunity to build those relationships and gain that social capital. Um, And, you know, that creates not just a dilemma and a challenge for us to face into in people experience teams or HR teams, but it creates a dilemma for us in diversity, equity and inclusion that because for our line of work, I don't want somebody that's chosen to operate 100% remotely, lose out in career progression on pay decisions um, uh, or exciting project work or opportunity. Their access to that opportunity should be the same as the colleague that's chosen to come in every day. Um, uh, And so I think it's something that as you say we'll need to test adapt and learn from but continually create a strong continuous feedback loop of what this this experience is really like for employees and that could be through surveys i think my preferred approach would just be open an open feedback loop where people can just go to and and dump feedback at any point in time and what their hybrid experience is like because i agree i went to a um the first day I went back into our Leeds office, it was fantastic because I think I spent uh, more time greeting people and saying hello to people that I haven't seen in 18 months and hugging people with permission if they, they were comfortable with that. Um, uh, but I, I got back to my desk and and as it got towards the end of the day, I was like... I've got to make the commute now back to Manchester and I am not looking forward to getting on the train. And the idea that I might not get a seat or it might be packed, um, you know, you're reminded of the productivity that I've also enjoyed from working from home and how much I've been able to achieve um, uh, working remotely. Oh, for sure. I I, I dread if if I have to go traveling around the country, around the world all the time, I wouldn't have time to do everything I have to do anymore. It's, I I could do 10 things a day rather than one thing a day by, by being you know, zero commute. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a luxury and a privilege I enjoy. Um, I, I had this big debate with somebody recently when they were talking about, you know, how people need to go back to the office for culture, how people need to go back to the coffee, the office for enrichment, for early year career advancement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. They're, they're coming up with all these reasons why you have to go back to the office. And I, I changed upon culture. Now, we talk about trying to dispel the myth about hiring for culture. We want we want culture out. We want values out. We want this. And yet the first thing you say was, we need you back for culture. Hang on a minute. Why do I need your culture? Why can't I treat my culture like my pension? I can take my culture with me. So why not invest in me so I can build a local culture? I can have time with my family, my children. I can get involved in my own community projects. I can I can socialize locally because I'm not commuting, because I'm not doing all this stuff. I can actually build, I actually invest now in my own culture that I can now take with me to any organization. I still go to the organization and have days where I meet people, we hug, we do all those sort of great things. So mm-hmm. I enjoy the people, but I want to build, I want to build my own family. Uh, work isn't a family. Work is work. Let's not kid ourselves. We want to act like a family, but family, families don't fire you. <laughs> families don't make you do things you don't want to do. So build, if, if organizations could encourage people to build their own culture locally in their own communities, and then, then value that, be it pay them right, treat them right, give them opportunity, et cetera, et cetera. That's why people will stay. That's why people will be loyal, not because of some nebulous culture and, and a merch and caps and, and sweatshirts and things, you know, that people think is culture. And I think that's what we've got to think about when we talk about this great resignation. We talk about the, the, you know, the rearrangement of work where people haven't, haven't met their employer. That suddenly they've been onboarded remote only, suddenly they have to go to work. So they're not finding the people they're working with are, are what they thought it was. There's going to be this great reset where people start playing runaround between organizations to, to hunt yeah. this nebulous culture. Um, so I think what we're going to do is, 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 is if we, I think if we, in the future of work, if we get organizations to value people and help them build their own work from, work from anywhere, let's not call it work from home, work, work remotely, work from anywhere, work from different locations to minimize the commuting, it, 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 
at COP26, we're talking now about reducing our own personal impact on the environment. That's commuting, that's electricity uses, that's fossil fuel uses, whatever that may be. The future of society is around being, is, is around not consuming as much. And for commuting, we're consuming. So I think we've got to try and encourage our people not to consume in the same way. So that that's a great advocate for working remotely. So how do we how do we do that? How do we do that? Then? Well, it's a, a um, it's 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 first accepting. And I think this relies on the leaders that we talked about in an organization have to accept that um, yesterday's good is no longer good enough and that the constraints um, or the structures that you've put in place to create a culture pre-pandemic are gone, they're broken, they're no longer fit for purpose. And if you don't begin to challenge yourself on how to create better experiences for people and more enrichment at work with your colleagues um, who choose to work remotely and have, as you said, regain the gifts of time and more valuable time with their families, then these organizations and businesses will fall behind. We've got to let go of traditional working constraints and challenge ourselves. It's new thinking, Joe. It's new ground. It's not a space that we've been in before. And the answer just isn't hybrid working. Um, uh, It's deeper than that and it's more complex than that. So don't let your approach to culture be dictated by traditional working practices. First of all, accept and admit that what's gone before will no longer work now, regardless of what your regardless of what your work's position or your company's position is on hybrid working. What's gone before will no longer work. And if you're not prepared as a business to evolve and think about, right, folks, let's get into a room, let's do a hackathon. Let's talk about the different experiences and personas of our people. Ditch the traditional constraints and talk about the types of experiences that we'd really want to create for people. Build some different personas and map out experiences based on those personas and pull your leaders together to really hack hack into the uh, problem that we have, but also the opportunity that lays ahead of us to create a fantastic company, regardless of where you are. And I love what you said about you know, your culture and your experiences could just be the time that you now have had gifted back to spend with your family or that time that you have to go for a walk at a, um, a lunchtime that we've also got to be okay with. Some people might not want to, uh, some people do come to work to get paid and clock off. They're not everybody needs a, um, and a, will feel hugely attached to your company's um, I think it matters that you feel fulfilled personally and have a purpose so that you belong at an organization, but not everybody might feel passionate about the company's overall purpose. Um, uh, so you've really got to challenge yourself in thinking around how you engage people remotely. I don't have all of the answers on that, but I think the place to start is to build personas, map out the different types of characters and people that you might have in your business, experience map what their experience might be like, and then ask yourself the question, what type of experience would you want them to have? How would you want them to feel when they're at home and not in the office um, about your organization, its values and its goals, and really hack around the problem and, and come up with some solutions but as it said, it has to start with accepting that um, what we did yesterday is no longer good enough today. And I think that's a, a great place to leave this. We've been going for over an hour. So I think that's, I love that completely. When you're talking about, it's about the hackathon. It's about looking at the real people's experience. How do you want to make people feel when they're working either from the office or remotely? And what's that? What's the objective? What are you trying to get out of people in terms of their feeling? How do you want to make them feel? So, yeah, I think that's, I think that's really powerful that without that engagement, without that true talking to our, to our colleagues and understand their lived experience, we're never going to solve that problem. And I think making these broad brush statements is all, all it's going to do is end up 
benefiting some and disenfranchising a whole load of others, which is yeah, why we talk about split resignation all the time. So that's been really insightful. I've loved chatting with you for an hour, Greg. It's been absolutely fantastic. So how do people get hold hold of you? I'm, I'm sure that connect with you on LinkedIn or something, or, or how else? That's the only. But they, you know, they can follow me on Instagram if they want, Joe. But all they'll see is pictures of a um, a ginger fluffy cat. Like it's not the most engaging of platforms. Um, but where you might some see something more meaningful of substance would be on LinkedIn. So if people want to reach out to me, they can connect with me on LinkedIn. Yeah, and a lot of the work you're doing with Flutter, the the sub brands, and also the sky betting gaming. There's a lot of good stuff that you're doing. I, I know this. So if people are looking for inspiration, then by following you and following some of your team, they'll be able to get a, a lot of a lot of feeling for what you're doing, what you're trying to achieve. So anyone who's listened to you today, I'm sure, will take inspiration for that. So thanks, Greg. Um, a huge thank you to my listeners for tuning in and uh, and well and getting this far in the podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, please do subscribe and keep updated for future episodes of the Inclusion Bites podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S. Please tell your friends, tell your colleagues. I've got a number of exciting guests lined up that I'm sure you'll be also inspired by over the next few weeks and months. And of course, if you'd like to be a guest, please let me know. I'm always looking for guests. So if you have any feedback or suggestions, please contact me at joe.lockwood at uk. Tell me how we can improve. Tell me what you like. Tell me what you hate. So my name is Joanne Lockwood. It's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.